All right, I have some questions and some biblical answers that I want to share with you, rather rapid fire. Uh, these questions and answers end our uh, lengthy There's No Place Like Home preaching series on marriage and parenting. And so I will get right to the first question. The question is, what if I am being abused in my marriage? It's a heavy question. The answer is, first of all, tell someone and call the police. Uh, domestic violence is not just a family matter. Uh, domestic violence is a crime. Uh, you should phone the police. And if necessary, you should get out of your home temporarily to ensure that you and the children are safe. But when you move out temporarily for safety's sake, please always have a prayerful eye toward uh, reconciliation with your mate. God can do all things, and you can pray that he will. Um, Dr. Dwayne Sands, our, our Minister of Health, I saw give a speech not too long ago, and he said that Bahamaland is one of the highest countries in the world per capita for domestic abuse, abuse of wives, abuse of children, and um, it's a big problem. In 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 11, it says, but to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Generally speaking, married people aren't to separate from each other, but when there's a danger of abuse, there is a place to temporarily get yourself out of that home, seek biblical counseling, hopefully with the one who's abused as well, and to separate yourself so there's safety for you and the children, but always with a view to being reconciled in Christ, not a view to divorce. The second question is this, must I always obey my parents? Uh, must I always obey my parents? The answer is no, no wait. You must always honor your parents, but if you um, are a fully grown adult, uh, honoring doesn't always require 100% obedience like it did when you were less than a fully adult child. In Ephesians 6, verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. The Greek word here for children is technoi. Technoi was the Greek New Testament word for less than mature children. So clearly, less than fully grown children have the obligation in the sight of God to obey their parents. When a, when a child grows to be adult, has their own family perhaps, there's not the same uh, command to the grown-up child, the adult child, to obey the parents in everything 100% all the way. For instance... I have dealt with adult children of parents who asked to be baptized in water, and their parents forbid them from being baptized in water. I told them they weren't obliged to obey their parents when they're a grown adult. Or I know of other situations where adult children have been led of the Lord to go to the foreign mission field, and they've gone to their parents, and for whatever reasons, the parents forbid them from going on foreign mission fields. 
And then that grown child comes to me as their pastor and says, what should I do, pastor? I say that technoi meant less than fully grown children. Technoi are to obey their parents in all things 100%, provided it's not sin and not a crime. But when you're a grown child, then that same obligation to obey is not there. But the obligation to honor your parents remains in, in effect. And we are to honor our parents even when we are fully grown up children of our parents. Honor our parents, and the promise is that it may go well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Next question. What is tough love? What is tough love? In the first place, tough love is truth married to love. Truth married to love. Listen to Ephesians 4, 14 to 15 on this. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But watch, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love, they're married together. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So in the first place, tough love is marrying together and not separating truth and love. You do know that truth without love is a hammer, and love without truth is mush. God wants our tough love to be truth married to love. Love married to truth. And of course, our Lord Jesus, perfect in every way, was perfect in marrying truth and love into his being. And in John 14, 6, Jesus said of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then in 1 John 3, 16, it says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Jesus Christ was the embodiment of love. He was the personification of love. But he also was the embodiment and the personification of perfect truth. He, he expressed both at all times. And then 1 John 4, 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And so tough love is the combining, the welding together of truth and love. That's how you want to love your children, if you're parents. Now, the second aspect of tough love is refusing to spare your child the consequences of bad choices or bad behaviors. Galatians 6, 7 is an overall arching principle. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. That's a timeless principle. What we plant, we sow. If I plant a date palm seed, I am not going to get a different plant. I am not going to get sea grapes. And when our children are warned and taught and warned and taught about the consequences of certain behaviors, we must not rescue them. We must let them experience the consequences for their bad choices or bad behaviors. And so what this is implying is that to have tough love in our home, we must have boundaries in our home. We must have established clear 
immovable boundaries. Lying is unacceptable. Stealing is unacceptable. Backtalking your parents is unacceptable, etc. Lines we draw in our families such that when those lines are crossed, there's a cost. And that cost might be a money cost in society. That might be a convenience cost. It might be a pain and hurtful cost. It might be limitation cost. It might be a reputation cost. It may be loss of opportunities at college or in the workforce. Part of tough love is to combine truth and love. And the second part of tough love is to not spare your children the consequences of their bad choices and bad behaviors. Don't run in and rescue. I was quite impressed. I believe it was this week with the honorable leader of the opposition, Philip Brave Davis. His son, along with some other individuals, were arraigned in the magistrate's court on the charge of unlawful possession of a firearm. What impressed me about the leader of the opposition's remarks was he said, despite my role in government, I do not want my son to be treated any differently than anyone else. And I'm deeply saddened by the charges that had been brought against him. He basically said he wasn't raised that way. And he said, I will be his loving parent. But basically he said, I will do nothing to sway the judicial system because he said it confidence in the police. That is tough love. That's commendable. Biblically, when we come to tough love, I think about the father in the parable of the prodigal son. You know the story. The younger son came to the father, and he had a plan for his life that didn't include working on the family farm. He comes to his daddy and says, give me my inheritance. And quite astoundingly, the father gave the second-born son his inheritance, and off he toddled to the far-off land, and he spent all of his inheritance money on wild living, prostitutes, alcohol, other things. In that far-off country, the runaway prodigal son got about the lowest job that any Jew could ever accept, working with pigs. And it got so bad, the son got so bad off that he started to eat the slop that he served to the pigs as food. Do you know what the father in the story didn't do? He didn't try to improve his son's situation in the far-off country. He let him have the consequences of the bad decision. And the person, this daddy, didn't wire the boy money with Western Union either. He loved him with tough love. Now, of course, when the son repented, when the son came home, when the son came home, Daddy, can I just be a hired hand on the farm? Not a son anymore. The, son, the father ran out to him and visibly and genuinely forgave him and said, let's have a barbecue. My son who is dead is now alive. But the father left the consequences of the boy's bad choices and behaviors with the boy until the boy came to his senses. Question four, what do I do? I don't feel in love with my wife or my husband anymore. What do I do? I don't feel in love with my wife or my husband anymore. Well, let me start by saying the term in love is Hollywood. It's not holy. It's contract. It's not covenant. It's hit song. It's not holy Bible. So let's put feelings in their place, shall we? 
I'll tell you right now that I'm a very much a human being, and my feelings blow hot and cold. My feelings can go all over the map. My feelings are not rock solid. But August 6th, 1983, that beautiful lady in the second pew in the, in the center section, I promised her and God and 600 witnesses that I would keep myself only for her, respect her and love her and cherish her. That's the fact. And that's what I have to come back to to be a husband. Not my feelings. My feelings and two bucks will get you a cup of coffee. My feelings are worthless. You know, you could picture it like this. If there's a train here, and the train is running on the track toward Pastor Worrell, what are you going to have as the engine, and what are you going to have as the caboose? Well, I'll tell you one thing you should never have as the engine is your feelings. Feelings make a terrible engine on a train, but they make a suitable caboose. Let me explain it a little more. When you have facts as the engine of your train, facts, for instance, marriage is a covenant, divorce isn't an option, divorce is a swear word in our home, by the way. We've always treated divorce as a swear word between us, and we treat a divorce as a swear word with our children. They don't say it, but we never say it to them. Both of you is a fact. Both of you as marrieds are called to repentance and to forgiveness and to hope. Those are the facts. Keep those as the engine of your train, and then those facts will follow choices, and those choices will follow actions, and all of that will precede your feelings. I have people coming to me all the time. In four churches I've pastored, people have come to me and said this, what do I do? I don't feel in love with my wife or my husband anymore. I say, get the train in order. Get the facts as the engine, get the feelings as the caboose, and your feelings will always catch up with the facts. And so when a man says, I just don't feel in love with my wife anymore, I say to him, what in the last month, what have you done to cherish your wife. Or the woman comes to me, the wife comes to me and says, I don't feel in love anymore with my husband. I say to her, ma'am, in the last month, what have you done to respect your husband? Usually it's not much on either side of the ledger. And so I give them homework. I say, by this time tomorrow, when we meet again, husband, I want you to tell me at least three things you did to cherish your wife in the last seven days. And wife, when we meet again in a week, I want you to tell me at least three things you did to show respect to your husband in the last seven days. Do you know what happens? Every time. Every time. When you get the facts right, and the facts lead to choices, and the choices lead to actions, every time the caboose comes around. Because cabooses follow engines. I've never seen a caboose lead an engine except it's being tendered. A normal train is led by an engine, facts, and the caboose comes along in line, feelings. Just before we move off of this, you know that wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians 13 we hear in weddings? Beautiful, beautiful passage. 
it says, I want you to listen to this passage, and I want you to do a checklist as I say things in the, in the passage. It, how many of these things are a choice, and how many of these things are a feeling? Ready? Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Were not all of those things choices and none of those things feelings? If you don't feel love for your mate anymore, then you be loving. You be the change that you want to see in the love tone of your marriage. Sometimes I also tell the, the couple that are battling with I don't feel in love anymore to make a list of all the things that attracted one of them to the other. Make a list. And then ponder that list on your own, and then share that list with your loved one, your mate. This is the list of things that first attracted me to you. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Question. Some of our friends seem to be led around by their kids. What's with that? Well, children are meant to be the orbit around the sun, but they are not meant to be the sun in a family. Children are welcomed, additions to the home, and all things being equal, one day there will be an empty nest. Let me correct that. There won't be an empty nest. When the last child moves out of the home of origin, there'll still be two lovebirds in the nest. And they happen to have been in the nest originally. Are you building love between you and your spouse, so that when all the kids do move out to do what God's called them to do, that you will know how to talk to each other, know how to have fun with each other, know how to support each other. Some of my friends seem to be led around by their kids. What's with that? Um, the Duke of Windsor, I've used this before, bear with me. The Duke of Windsor once uh, traveled to Canada for a two-week visit with the Queen. And at the end of his two weeks in Canada, someone in the press asked the Duke of Windsor what were his impressions of Canada. And he said, I am very impressed with how well Canadian parents obey their children. Now, in the void or in the absence of parental leadership, children will always put themselves in charge. They'll do that either knowingly or unknowingly. It's because it's to do with their sin nature. It's to do with their flesh. It's a default setting that unled children in their homes will put themselves first. I was at a pool a little while ago, busy pool, and I was standing in a line to buy some food. It was a long line of people wanting to buy food. And this 11-year-old boy, I'm estimating, barged into the line in front of me and ordered his food. 
And I'm standing there thinking, where's the father in this? And so after a time, the food comes to the 11-year-old, and I watched him. He ran over to a table where his younger sister was sitting, and she asked him very politely for some French fries, and he bit her head off and said, you're not getting any French fries. These are my French fries. Children are gifts and their rewards and their blessings, but they are to be arrows and not archers. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps away awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward, watch it, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Children are arrows. And the more children we have, God says in this psalm, the better. (laughs) We have more arrows in our quiver. But children are never supposed to be archers. Children are arrows that parents are to point them to hit targets of the parent values, godliness, Christ-likeness, salvation, others' orientation, diligence, prayer. Those are the targets that we as Christian parents should be aiming our arrows toward and understanding that our kids are arrows and they're not archers. Children are supposed to be contributors and not always takers from the family. They should have chores, age-appropriate chores. They should be called to obedience and respect. They should have a part in contributing to the family's harmony and unity. Children are also supposed to be mentees and not mentors. Children are supposed to be soldiers and not generals. Children are supposed to be followers and not leaders. Children should give care to their elderly parents one day. In my opinion, no spanking usually leads to a person who has no respect for authority, a sense of entitlement, and rebellious tendencies. Children are not to run the show. When children run the show, it can be dangerous. That same boy, 11 years old at the pool, He ate his food selfishly, refused to share with his sister. They got in the pool eventually, and he started holding his sister underwater at a dangerously long time, and she was panicking. The dad almost apologized to interrupt the son and said, do you think you can get out of the pool now? Don't you think it's time to get out of the pool? Man, it took everything in me not to speak to that situation. Do you know what the kid did? The kid, when the, when the father said, don't you think it's time to get out of the pool? He went <laughs> to his father and stayed in the pool. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? When the kids run the show, the show is dangerous. And when the children run the show, the show involves self-centeredness and discontentment and comparison to bad examples. You know, Daddy, Mr. McGillicuddy lets Billy do this. 
when children run the show, they have been allowed by their parents to disobey Romans 12, verse 3, which says, For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. I don't think that family at the pool were Christians. But that father with his passivity and his weakness and no spine to stand up to his little brat who was 11 years old was letting that child think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Ephesians 6, 1 and 2. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Now, when you think about not allowing your child to rule the roost, to run the show, to lead you as parents. When you think of that, I have some negative examples of this in the Old Testament. I have Eli's sons. I have David's son, Absalom. It's a serious problem, and if you have it, fix it. Next question, my husband... Or my wife has cheated on me. What should I do? Well, the first thing you should do, of course, is pray. And then you should tell your spouse that you know that he or she has committed adultery and that it is not okay with you. By the way, call it adultery. None of this sweethearting. None of this affair. I had an affair. None of that. Call it what it is. It's adultery. Seek biblical counsel. Hopefully, your adulterer or your adulteress will join you across the parking lot at the Christian Counseling Center, and you can get that counseling together. But if you can't go with your spouse, go alone. Don't see divorce as an option before you. Because, you know, Christ and his relationship with the church is to be depicted by human marriage. And do you know, as I know, that some churches, some churches, some local expressions of the body and bride of Christ have been adulterating their love for God. They're adulterers spiritually. They're adulterers spiritually. God doesn't divorce the true blood-bought, born-again Christian of that kind of an assembly. And so, if you have been offended, hurt, pierced by your mate committing adultery, please don't consider divorce as an option. Forgive. As you have been forgiven, forgive. Even if you have not been asked to do so, you say, that sounds radical, Pastor. Yeah, it is. Ephesians 4, 30 to 32. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Because each one of us is mega forgiven by God. It should be in our DNA to forgive others. And medically speaking and practically speaking, not to forgive will make you sick. It'll make you sick physically. It'll make you sick spiritually. 
Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, and then 31 to 32. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. When we don't forgive, that is the primary cause of clinical depression. There are other causes of clinical depression, but the primary cause of clinical depression, and that's, that's depression that's debilitating and gets you in a hospital. That's not the blues. Clinical depression is a serious thing. It's an illness. And if we refuse to forgive, then we will be subject to a clinical depression because anger and unforgiveness depletes one of the amines in the brain. And when that amine is depleted far enough, you are clinically depressed. And it usually starts with an unwillingness to forgive. Practically speaking, refusing to forgive is drinking the poison which you hope will kill someone else. When a person refuses to forgive, it winds up doing more harm to them than it does to the person they're refusing forgiveness. It's like drinking the poison which you hope will kill someone else. Now, we need to face the fact, and I do very personally, I have a testimony for this truth, for humans, forgiving is not forgetting. Forgiving is not forgetting. We remember as humans, but with forgiveness, we can come to remember what was done wrong to us without the intense emotional charge that that offense used to make us have. I can look back on my life where persons have done me wrong, and I have chosen to forgive them, and at times their name comes up in my mind from previous churches, and I think of what they did to me, and then I go, wait a minute, <laughs> I forgave them. Who am I not to forgive them because Christ has forgiven me? And so I might remember what they did to me, but I don't remember it with the high energy friction and heat that I used to have when I thought about it. Now, it's like this. We were walking our dog on Paradise Island uh, yesterday, have a nice little time. And um, what if someone had come up to us and said, oh, is your dog friendly? Yeah, dog's friendly. Dog's really nice. You know, his name's Yankee. He, he wouldn't bother you one bit. May I pet him? Yeah, you may pet him. <laughs> oh, he's never done that before. I'm very sorry. Will you please forgive me that my dog bit you from your wrist up to your shoulder? I'll tell you something. If they are gracious to forgive what my dog did, they will never see Yankee in the same way again. They can forgive what happened, but they'll never see my dog in the same way again. And understand that. If, God forbid, your mate commits adultery against God and you, you have to understand that when you're trying to put the pieces of your marriage back together again, that it is, it's reasonable and expected and automatic that it will take considerable time, considerable time for you to be able to trust that person again.
Practically speaking, if your spouse commits adultery, then you need to make sure that person is verified to have no STDs. Also, you need to verify with with reasonable accountability and investigation that that person will no longer have any contact with the adulteress or the adulterer. Any contact. You work with them, get another job. No contact. As President Ronald Reagan (laughs) said of the Russians, trust but verify. Trust, but verify. Next question. As concerned parents, how do we separate our child from bad company? Answer. You do that with proper parental leadership and with biblical conviction. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, it says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Be not deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And then in Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Do you see the progression of those verbs? Walk, stand, sit. Maybe your child right now has been walking with people of of bad character, or maybe they're in the place of standing with those people, or maybe they're already sitting with those people of bad character. You have the responsibility and the power in Christ to do something about it. You need to pray. And you yourselves as parents have to have solid Christian friends with good character. Amazing thing that Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. You can't call your child to have godly and good friends if you don't have godly and good friends. Won't work. Then, another way of saying that, you better be wearing the shoes you want your kids to fill. Um, You ought to make it your business to know who your child's friends are. And you need to insist on knowing where your child will be in an evening and have them check with you that evening. Now, here's a radical thought to try to break away your child from bad company that they think is just fine. What would happen if you took your child to the A&E department of PMH or doctor's hospital this Friday night? Just sit there. Watch what walks in. Or this is even more bodacious. What if you heard of the tragedy of someone who was a less than innocent victim who was killed? Less than innocent. What about going respectfully, uh, quietly, in the back of the funeral and sit your child in that funeral with you? Works. Then tell your child real-life stories about how bad company corrupted good morals. Maybe it's uh, one of your school friends you could tell about, or maybe it's your neighbor, or maybe it's a public figure, or maybe it's a pro athlete. Tell stories to your kids about how bad company corrupted good morals. And on the flip side, welcome good company into your child's life and into your home. Kids who love and honor the Lord Jesus and who are involved in a sound Bible church like ours. Beth and I, in Canada, one place we live, nothing was close by. Everything was a long drive 
Long drives to anything and anybody. And many miles we drove with our children. We drove our daughter to good Christian friends because they weren't around our house, and we drove. Or we drove our son to sound Christian friends that weren't anywhere near where we lived, but it was worth it to us. Here's one for you. To break a child away from bad company, don't always drop your child off to the youth events. Why don't you sometimes stay and help in the youth events from time to time? And as you're in the youth group, you could just off to the side, quietly observe how the evening goes for your child. Who do they hang around with? Who do they want to hang around with? And if you don't know that young person, go over to Pastor Nicholas or to Sister Tamson or any other adult who works with our youth group and say, see that person over there wearing the purple shirt? Mm -hmm. I don't know him. Could you tell me about him? Still, to break your child away from bad company, I, we need to expect that our children will give Christian service. Don't let our children come to the place of being consumers in this church, spectators in this church. There are plenty of ways for a child uh, to serve in this church, depending on age appropriateness, the VBS, the choir, nursery, ushering, mini church, cross trainers, operation, in as much, drama, Sunday school, etc. How do we break our child away from bad company? Well, let me close this answer with this. We can be greatly encouraged that the reverse of 1 Corinthians 15.33 is also true, that good company builds good morals. Hebrews 10.23, encourage us not to forsake our assembling together as is the manner of some, so that we can stimulate one another love and good deeds. That's best done in a church like this one. Question, my husband is saved, but he's not growing spiritually, and he won't lead me or our kids to the Bible and prayer at all. What should I do? Well, you should pray. And you should consistently and very pleasantly, you should ask him if he would read the Bible with you and if he would pray with you and the children pleasantly. Will you be reading the Bible and praying with us today? And if he says no, then you do it. But as you do it, you can smile and say, okay, I will do it today, but I will gladly give you your job back when you will accept it. I think that something which Ruth Graham Bell said is, is very helpful. She said this, it's a foolish woman who expects her husband to be to her that which only Jesus Christ himself can be. That sounds right to me. And so, disappointed Christian wife, whether or not your husband is growing spiritually, you grow spiritually. Whether or not your husband fosters spiritual growth in your children, you foster spiritual growth in your children. Because why should your kids pay the price of their daddy's irresponsibility and sin? 
Question, as a husband and wife, how do we get to agreement on things like parenting, spending, free time, in-laws, conflict resolution, and the church? Well, the first thing I would say is from the Old Testament prophet Amos 3.3, do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? You're going to have to make an appointment between the wife and the husband to sort this out. It doesn't happen automatically. It takes effort, intentionality. Secondly, the passage I want to share is Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, who can resist him? A cord of three strands is not easily torn apart. And so how are you going to get on the same page with things like parenting, spending, free time, in-laws, conflict, resolution, and the church by having an appointment with your mate and talking it out? Increase your time together. Pray together. It's not that you go for just a quality of time in appointment. It's a quality of time and a quantity of time you want to give to this process. That being said, you don't want each session for the both of you to just become so fatiguing you don't know that you want to have another session. Shorter sessions will leave you both longing and not loathing the process. Of course, reading God's Word together is key to get on the same page. Talking about everything, I know I can be guilty of this, guys. I'm a man of too few words at home. I give all my words, not all of them, a lot of them here to you. But when I can get home, I can just be so tired and so talked out that I don't give much of anything for Beth. That's wrong. Talk about everything. Uh, Your oneness problem on these issues didn't come about in a short time, and they won't be solved in one super long meeting. But they can be solved in several short, prayerful, biblical, open talks that are drenched in prayer. You've got to keep the lines of communication open between you as husband and wife. You don't don't want to uh, traffic in assumptions or laziness or selfishness or silent treatment. Those are all of the enemy. They're not of the Lord. Keep the lines of communication between you open. Read or listen to the Bible together. And after you've read and listened to the Bible together, then read and listen to books of mutual interest together on parenting, on money management, on travel, on history, on marriage, on Christian character, on biographies of Christian, fine Christians in history. Last question. If we can afford it, and if we tithe to our church, what's the problem with us giving the best of things to our kids? Simply put, the problem is that the best of things are not better than you and your wife. Too many parents, even Christian parents, provide for their children without parenting their children. This is a real possibility in the day and age in which we live. It's a real pitfall and a trap. And when that happens, when parents are more quick to provide stuff for their kids than to be their parents, when that happens, here's some of the trains of thought that parents who fall into that trap have. They have roofs over the, a roof over their heads and food. I've done my part. 
They have this device or that device. What more do they need from me? You guys occupy yourself. I'm serving, I'm deserving of some downtime. I never had those things as a child. I'm happy to give those things to my kids. I'm their provider. I let someone else be their friend. You know, a smartphone is about all that my kid really needs. Here's the truth. Nothing replaces parental time and parental touch. Nothing replaces parental time and parental touch. A phone or a fun activity, clothes or connection in conversation, a long-distance plan or laughter, internet or real interest in them, hairdos or hanging out. Parents, you are the ones positioned in the plan of God to have the greatest impact on your children. That's why God gave you your children. And so as grateful as we are for Sunday school teachers and pastors and sports coaches, we're grateful for those people, they do not have a shot at having the same impact on your child as you do, Dad, and you do, Mother. And it isn't true that it's the quality of time but not the quantity of time. It's not true. It is both the quality and the quantity of time which parents spend with their children. And you know what? My child could have everything that I could afford that money could buy stockpiled in his room. But if that's all he gets from me, I've given him candy floss instead of meat. I've given him candy floss instead of meat. Your children and my children need their parents more, much more than they need the stuff that we provide for them. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These things which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. There is no substitute for Christian parents' presence in the lives of their children. No substitute. This command in Deuteronomy was on a, for an average day, a typical day, a vanilla day, an ordinary day. Fathers were to do that. And that requires a presence in the life of the child. Not an absentee father, a present father. And, of course, the best example of God's love for us and uh, grace toward us is that in the uh, incarnation of Jesus, the Christmas event in John 1.14, and the word became flesh. That allowed Jesus to be present with those on earth when he was on the earth. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw, because of his presence, we saw his glory, glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then when you look further on in the New Testament at the second epistle to the young pastor, Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2, when Paul gives a model, an ideal way of passing on spiritual truth and doctrine, he says, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The only way you can trust the truth is having a presence in the life of the one to whom you entrust it. Well, these are 10 questions and 10 answers from God's word. And I trust that God will bless the intake of this truth in my life and in each of your lives that are married, in each of your lives that are parents, and in each of your lives who are single, who would like to be married, etc. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. And we pray for those hearing the word of God today that we would not be hearers only, but doers of the word of God. We pray for our marriages to be vibrant, healthy, reflective of Christ's relationship with the church. And where they aren't, bring about change, Lord, we ask. Bring about change. And may our parenting resemble the parenting of the Heavenly Father. May we get involved in our children's lives. May we lead our children and not let them lead us. And where that's happening, we're leading, thank you, and where it's happening, the children are leading, help us to change. For those of us who are married, we say thank you. For those of us who are parents, we say thank you. And for those of us who are single, who would love to marry, we pray that these principles will not roll over heads, but would be retained for future reference. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and God's church said, amen.